Major funding for Pop Culture Affidavit is provided for by The Demanza Corps, The Biscuit Basket, Murray and Phyllis Clawhammer, The Con Funk Soap Foundation, The Human Fund, and listeners like you. Thank you. Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 126. This is PBS. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. You know, it had been a couple of months since I released a proper episode of the show prior to my Baltimore Comic Con coverage, but it did kind of feel longer because... Since the middle of July, when I covered Cyborg, I released one Fallen Walls Open Curtains and in that entire six-part miniseries about 9-11 in popular culture. So I thought that in the interest of looking at something a little less serious than Soviet invasions and terrorist attacks in the United States, I'd follow up my comic book convention with something a little more nostalgic. And I'm focusing on my history with PBS. Yes, PBS the public broadcasting system. It was established in 1969 and has been a fixture on our televisions ever since, providing educational and fine arts programming and has been foundational to my generation and the generations that have followed it. Because when you really think of it, some of our first television images that many of us remember seeing aren't necessarily cartoons, you know, like Scooby-Doo or the Super Friends, but Big Bird, Cookie Monster, Grover, Oscar the Grouch. Part of the reason for that is the quality of that very programming. Growing up, your parents didn't think that Mr. Rogers was going to rot your brain, but also because it was ready available to anyone with a television. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of PBS and then go through some specific shows and memories that I have through my childhood and into my adulthood. Because as I was thinking about it and prepping this episode, which really originally was going to be nostalgia-focused, I realized that I still watch PBS programming on a fairly regular basis. And with the exception of maybe bits and pieces of my teens and 20s, I've been a consistent PBS watcher ever since I was a little kid. So let's start with the history. And like I said, PBS was formally established in November of 1969. And it's not a network 
it's more of a community of what are called member stations. And those are locally or regionally owned stations that broadcast programming provided by the national organization that we refer to as the public broadcasting system. Those stations often produce or distribute said programming as well before sending it out nationally. And PBS notably doesn't have a central programming operation or a news division, say like CBS, NBC, or ABC. The PBS NewsHour, which was originally the McNeil Lehrer NewsHour, is produced out of Washington, D.C.'s station, WETA. Another well-known aspect of PBS programming is that most of it and nearly all of it is funded by donations and member support, the last of which is gained through pledge drives whose interruptions of television shows became so much of a running joke over the years that the Ben Stiller show parodied it in a sketch where Janine Garofalo kept interrupting a British drama at the most inopportune times. With his majesty in such a mood, I think it best not to answer, sire. A shrewd response. But how will you respond to this? Welcome back to the KFSB Pledgeathon. I'll tell you something, you don't get great drama like that on regular television, and you certainly don't get it commercial free. You know what else you don't get? This attractive tote, which can be yours free when you become a special friend at PBS, and it's only a $50 donation. That's right, Ruth. And for just $200 more, you'll become a PBS cherished companion, which entitles you to a free cassette entitled Laugh About Washington, a full hour of wit from comedian slash commentator slash political satirist Mark Russell. Absolutely, Neil. Now let's get back to some of that great uninterrupted programming. You have betrayed me, Sir Charles. The letter, I am undone. Now you must pay for it. Welcome back to the KFSB Pledgeathon, and with us today is the star of the dramatic presentation you're enjoying, actor Daniel Stillman. Daniel, hello. The sketch in its entirety is really funny, uh, as is the show, and the Ben Stiller show definitely needs its own episode. Its own episode. I was a huge, huge fan of that show when it was on, and I actually have the entire series on DVD. Anyway, even those who didn't watch PBS on a regular basis definitely knew what it was like, because... Well, like I said, it's on any television that has an antenna. And in my house growing up, it's one of the seven channels we got in my, on the television, in addition to the three, you know, we have the three major networks and five, nine, and 11, which were the syndicated channels, which I talked about a couple of years ago on It Came From Syndication. Our PBS station was WNET Channel 13, the station, of course, is name-checked in the Billy Joel song, Pressure. Now, growing up on Long Island, there are actually two PBS channels available. The other one was WLIW Channel 21, but that didn't reach us out in Sayville, at least uh, if you use the ugly-ass giant antenna that my parents had on the top of the house. 
When we got the newer VCR in the early 90s, though, uh, the one with the digital channel switching as opposed to the top model loading where you would one where you'd press the channel button on the front of the VCR, we discovered we could pick up a little bit more um, television if you actually watch TV through the VCR. We got Channel 55 uh, out on the east end of Long Island, which I also talked about in it came from syndication and Channel 21. I am sure there's some sort of technical explanation for this. I just thought it was really cool that we got two extra channels. I realized it didn't take very much to impress me back then. So Channel 13. Okay, so Channel 13 was my primary and really my only PBS station for a very long time, especially from when I was a kid. And uh, we have a long history, uh, you know, and uh, from that time when I was a teenager, it's and until I left Long Island. Um, and But since I left Long Island, I got my PBS through WETA, the Washington, D.C. station that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago when I lived in Crystal City in Arlington, Virginia. Actually, only a couple of blocks away from PBS's current headquarters. And uh, since I lived in Charlotte, I've lived in Charlottesville since about 2004, I regularly watch VPM, which is the uh, Virginia's public television uh, station, as well as the PBS spinoff channel, Create TV. So what exactly is that history and what are the memories I have? Well, I'll get to that right after this message. So stick around. Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome.
I don't need to tell you what that theme song is, just like I don't need to get into a summary or rundown of Sesame Street. Jim Henson's children's television workshop creation is so much a part of the fabric of American culture that almost every single child born since the early 1970s has watched it at some point or another. Now, there may be people listening who are actually old enough to have been a child before Sesame Street premiered in 1969, and there may be a few who actually never watched Sesame Street. But the show was so ubiquitous by the time I was born and had generated so much trust with the American parents that I don't think any of us can pinpoint when or where we first caught our first glimpse of Big Bird, Cookie Monster, or Oscar the Grouch. They were just there. I have memories of watching the show as part of a morning lineup when I was very little. I went to an afternoon preschool and kindergarten, so my Aunt Ingrid would come watch me and my sister in the mornings until it was time to go to school, and then she'd either drive me there or put me on the bus. And then I watched Scooby-Doo when I got home from school each day. But Sesame Street was formative, not just because of the education it provided, but because it was one of the first places that saw recurring characters, and it even began understanding the concept of an ongoing narrative. Now, that latter one is a little shaky because I was also watching The Challenge of the Super Friends and other cartoons that sometime had overarching stories. But the characters are very true, especially considering that I had a fair amount of Sesame Street merchandise as a little kid. There were posters on my bedroom walls of Bert and Ernie, Oscar and Big Bird. I had the Fisher-Price Little People Sesame Street Clubhouse, which came with Little People versions of all the main characters and even the short-lived 1970s character Roosevelt Franklin. And I had a ton of Sesame Street golden books and coloring books. In fact, the Grover book, There's a Monster at the End of This Book, is a book that Amanda and I bought and gave to my parents at Christmas in 2006 as a way of telling them that we were going to have a baby. It's still one of the greatest single works of American literature, by the way. Now, the other thing that Sesame Street gave me was music. Because while I have memories of a lot of pop music from the early 1980s, that was the stuff that my parents or my older cousins were listening to. I mean, it was, in a sense, my music. And to prove it, I still own eight Sesame Street LPs. Now, full disclosure here, I'm pretty sure that a number of these belong to my older cousins because the copyright dates on them are from 1974, 1975, 1977, and 1979. Also, I have a copy of 1983's Born to Add because I purchased it off of eBay a number of years ago when I saw the cover of Bert as Bruce Springsteen and Cookie Monsters, Clarence Clemens, and, well, how could I not? buy that. The albums I owned as a little kid and still own are Sing the Hit Songs of Sesame Street, Sesame Street Songs, Merry Christmas, Sesame Street 2, the original cast record, Sing Sang Song Sing Along, Everybody's Record, and Sesame Disco. Yes, Sesame Disco, which features the song Me Lost Me Cookie at the Disco. Me lost me cookie at the disco. Me lost me cookie in the boogie music. Me lost me cookie at the disco. Me want it back. Me want it back again. Oh, me not sure how it happened, but me took me favorite cookie with me to the disco. You laugh. That song's a bop, as the kids say. 
Anyway, a lot of the songs on these records are the little kid standards like Old MacDonald, The Hokey Pokey, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, songs that I'm pretty sure are in the public domain and therefore cost very little to record and produce. The Christmas album similarly is full of holiday standards, but some of them have a Sesame Street twist, and there are songs that are sung by the cast, such as Keep Christmas With You All Through the Year, although my favorite off the album is their version of The Twelve Days of Christmas. These albums do feature a number of songs that Sesame Street became known for, such as I Love Trash, Rubber Ducky, C is for Cookie, and the song to this day that I remember very clearly, which is Sing. I think this was one of my favorite to play on my parents' record player when I was younger, and I have vague memories of singing along to it. I think that the song had different people singing it depending on the record, which sometimes a chorus of kids singing and was sometimes an adult. I want to say that this was somebody like Bob singing the song on the record that I have, but it may have been some singer they got, especially since I have a feeling that a few of these records that I have either got permission by the Children's Television Workshop to slap the Sesame Street label on them, or they were otherwise unofficial Sesame Street records. Not that there's a hot secondary market for 1970s Sesame Street albums, <laughs> but I did look them up a few days ago. They go for about 10 or 15 bucks a pop, you know. Anyway, the adults on the show did sing on the records, and that was pretty cool to me when I was little. The people who lived in the neighborhood, like Gordon and Susan and Bob and Maria and Louise and Mr. Hooper, were just as important to me and the show as Big Bird and Grover, because they were some of the first trustworthy adults I saw who were not members of my family. Of course, I grew up in a safe place, but even in my suburban bubble, the idea of adults that a kid can trust was very important. Which brings me to the one adult that every single person in my generation knew that they could trust. a beautiful day in this neighborhood a beautiful day for a neighbor would you be mine could you be mine it's a neighborly day in this beauty wood a neighborly day for a beauty would you be mine could you be mine 
I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Again, much like Sesame Street, by the time I was a little kid in the early 1980s, Fred Rogers was an institution, and the introduction to his show where he took off his shoes and put on his sweater was iconic. I honestly don't remember specific episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, just the regular features. Mr. McFeely's speedy delivery, the trolley, the land of make-believe, and how that entire show was not only couched in kindness, but a kindness that was genuine. There was a purity to Mr. Rogers that so few people demonstrate these days, and I vividly remember when he accepted the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 1999 Daytime Emmys. So much of what he and Sesame Street, as well as the electric company, taught me when I was in nursery school and younger, really laid a foundation for both how much I love to learn and, in some ways, my values. Yes, those also came from my parents and teachers, and there's stuff I haven't completely rejected from Sunday school at a Lutheran church, but I was watching those shows so much that they all rubbed off on me in the right way. And while I talked about their theme songs and some original cast numbers, I wanted to close out this segment by talking about three of the interstitial sketches that I remember from Sesame Street and The Electric Company. Now, why these three? Well, because I still remember them so much that every once in a while, I find myself thinking about them or humming their tunes. These were shorts and other things that were put in between sketches or segments involving the regular cast of the Muppets. And they were meant to show you some sort of art or teach you partially how to read or play some music or count or something. And there was always a wide variety of contributors. Um, there was never one particular thing, and I'll get into that in a second with this one, this first piece, which is an animated short. This is where a girl is given a shopping list. Now don't forget a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. If you can't remember, I'll write it down for you. That's okay, Mommy. I won't forget. I remember. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. Now hopefully some of you are out there nodding along. One thing I noticed about this sketch when I rewatched it for the first time in a number of years, and I'll link to this sketch in any and all the songs and shorts that I show in the show notes, it's the animation style. It's hand-drawn. I mean, obviously, it's from the 1970s. But it reflected an aesthetic of the time. I can't even say who did this, but I can say that it reminded me of how Sesame Street's aesthetic in general was diverse. Yes, they used the same sets for the Muppets, and they had the main Sesame Street set, but when it came to live action and animated segments, they didn't make let them feel generic. You know, I'm no childhood education expert, but I have to think that seeing such a variety of style at a young age, as opposed to, say, 
a show where every single interstitial segment looks like it comes from the show that was being produced. Um, I have to imagine that uh, that has to be healthy. You're not getting like, it's not all packaged. It's not all slick. It's not that weak sauce, bad computer animation that kind of dominated some kitty children's uh, cartoon shows in the early 2000s and stuff. Of course, I didn't put it there for its animation style. That was just kind of a consequence of me watching. It's the shopping list that I remember, right? I mean, to this day, when I have to remember a list and I've not written it down, I recite the list. And not only that, but I'm so much like this girl because when I get all the way to the store and forget one or more, I forget one or more item. Now, usually it's the most, the thing I actually went to the store for, like I go to Target and I buy $20 worth of crap I don't need, but I forget what I actually came into Target for. So there's like, you know, two Sprites of Coke and trail mix and Cheez-Its, but I was there to get Q-tips. So now I have to stick a Post-it on my wallet. So I remember. And even then, that's not the most foolproof thing. Really, though, I, I'd say the list. And, and I'll say the list in the same way she does. And sometimes I think to myself, even aloud, a stick of butter. Next up is the sign song. I think this was a Sesame Street thing. It might have been an Electric Company song. Honestly, they were made by the same production company. I think they shared materials between the two shows, especially after the original run of the Electric Company and Sesame Street ended and Sesame Street kept going. So I don't think it really matters. The line, no right turn, no left turn, what do you do, is embedded in my brain. Like, remember how in episode 97 I talked about commercials and that certain ads like Fruity Marshmallow Krispies still get stuck in my head completely at random? That's what happened with the sign song. I mean, even when I was a teenager and I saw left no left turn sign, I'd hear that part of the song in my head. And maybe the song's also responsible for my love of street signs. I mean, I still track signs I spot in order to fill out a sticker book that is 30 years old. I wrote about it on the blog a number of years ago. And I follow three road sign groups on Facebook. So, yeah. By the way, I, I like the simple interaction with this song. You know, Halfway through the song ends, and you hear the man say, now you try. And we see the entire thing again with just the music playing, but there's no vocals. So you have to read the signs. It's great. I remember being little and saying, or maybe singing along to it. And not only that, it was easy, easily one of my favorite segments. I get so excited when it came on. So it's no wonder this still gets stuck in my head. But when it comes to interstitial segments and animated segments on Sesame Street, the best, my all-time favorite, the GOAT of Sesame Street shorts is this. Six, 
It wasn't until recently that I learned that this song was sung by the Pointer Sisters. The short was produced by San Francisco-based Imagination Incorporated. It featured a number of San Francisco-area musicians who incorporated varying musical styles, which were arranged by Ed Bogus, a name that 1980s kids will recognize from the Garfield primetime animated specials. There's an old blog post that the Wikipedia page links to in which the blogger shares a 2003 letter they received from Walt Kramer, who was in charge of the entire production. Sadly, much of the original audio and animation cells were either lost or thrown away, so the only thing that exists is on tapes in the Sesame Workshop vault, which have been also transferred to YouTube. And it's just pure perfection. The funky beat, the keyboards, the counting, that 70s animation that's so out of this world, it's a chef's kiss. I don't need to say much more about it, except that I want you to groove to the last 45 seconds or so as a transition into my next segment, where I'll be moving up a few grades into elementary school and two shows that really left their mark. So while the Sesame Street is the gold standard, I have to say that the show I have the fondest memories of and which had the best theme song is 321 Contact. Premiering in 1980, 321 Contact was a CTW production and is notable for being the first ever television series to receive funding from the National Science Foundation. Now, there had been science shows prior to this, but what made 321 Contact different, as well as unique, was that unlike these prior shows, this had a main cast of young people and it was in a different format. Each show is centered around a theme, and the kids in the show use varying ways to explore that theme and those concepts. Furthermore, the show had segments where adult reporters interviewed scientists and other experts who would explain how the episode's concept was applied in real life, and those scientists were of different ethnic backgrounds. It was all done through careful research to specifically help develop a show about science for kids, and according to the Physics Today article, S is for Science, The Making of 321 Contact, the show inspired the careers of a number of scientists and mathematicians in various fields. Before I go further in this part of the segment, I have to give it 
give credit to David A. Scudieres, who sent me that Physics Today article. So 321 Contact aired on PBS mostly in the mornings and afternoons and was in direct competition in so many cases with the morning and afternoon cartoon blocks. Those afternoon cartoon blocks were mostly marketing, which I'm only pointing out because of the way they directed contrasted with a show like 321 Contact, which had this educational purpose. But it worked really well because it showed kids doing kids stuff. Moreover, what I found interesting from the article is that the rationale behind a lot of what CTW did was a lot of what you see today. A need for diversity and inclusion because they had a diverse audience, good production value, and realistic people. In watching some clips of the show, I was taken back to when I used to watch it. I remember the clubhouse and the kids and segments of about science. In fact, I got an answer to something that was bugging me since I was like in the second grade or something. And that's, this is where I remember first seeing the band Kiss. Being born in 1977, I'm too young to have taken part in 1970s Kiss mania. And it's possible that I'd seen the name or even an image of the band prior to seeing them on 321 Contact because I have cousins who grew up in the 70s. But there was an episode about lighting and lights, and the show went behind the scenes at a KISS concert to investigate how the show was put together. At one point, I remember watching this in my second grade classroom. I can't remember if my teacher, Mrs. Hall, had rolled a film projector or a TV cart, you know, the one with those very old school top-loading and push-down button VCRs, into the room, but we watched how KISS's show got put together. And that's, like I said, where I first remember seeing KISS. The other thing I remember from the show, and I think a lot of people do, is the Bloodhound Gang. Whenever there's trouble, we're there on the double, we're the Bloodhound Gang. If you've got the crime, we've got the time, we're the Bloodhound Gang. Written by Newberry Medal winning author Sid Fleischman, these were end-of-the-show segments that were a show within a show about kids solving crimes. For a generation that had been accustomed to Scooby-Doo, this worked out really, really well, and it also reflected the show's mission of diversity. I'm pretty sure I also wanted to be a member of the Bloodhound Gang at some point, which we probably all did if we were watching the show. It was one of the coolest things. 321 Contact would run until 1988. It was immensely popular in 19, on PBS. The Girl Scouts created a 321 Contact merit badge system for those people who completed experiments that were on the show. And PBS would then use the show's success to develop Bill Nye the Science Guy and the Magic School Bus, which were on much later than when I was in the core audience. But it also led to another show by the same producers in 1987. This time, it was one focusing on math. <laughs> to say that I happened upon square one completely by accident. My parents both worked, so we had to stay at a neighbor's house in the morning before we got on the bus for school. We were good friends with the kids and 
We just sat around and watched cartoons in the morning. I think that the cartoons were getting pretty boring or we kept seeing the same ones. So at some point, some of these shows just got repeated and repeated. So we started flipping around one day and we came across two detectives using math to solve crimes. It was, if you're not familiar with Square One, that show's version of the Bloodhound Gang, which was called MathNet. Yes, it was Dragnet with math. And this particular episode, I remember very, very vividly. It was one where they had a Springsteen-esque singer whose name I think was like Bruce Stringbean. He'd been kidnapped and it was up to the MathNet detectives along with his biggest fan to try to find out where he was. Um, I think the clue, the, one of the first clues was that he would he was singing uh, a ransom note or something into a telephone because the kidnappers had made him do that. And he was singing off key on purpose so that they could figure out what the phone number to the place where he was was by singing the tones on the phone number. Anyway, Square One was appointment television pretty quickly. And because it, it didn't only have MathNet, but it, the regular segments were much more like it was 3 2 on contact. But since it was like the late 1980s, it was really more kinetic. Because by the late 1980s, by 1987, when Square One premiered, the pop culture landscape had sh shifted considerably since 1980 when 3 2 1 contact came out. And that was due to the rise of MTV in the music video. So Square One was flashier, it involved some comedy, and it even had math-themed songs and music videos. The one of which I remember the most is a Beach Boys-themed one called Tessellations. So in junior high, there was a poster in my math teacher's classroom about tessellations, and every time I looked at it, I immediately thought of this song. Of course, that was maybe three or four years after I'd watched Square One every morning, but the same poster would show up in a math class I was covering about 20 years later, and guess what I thought of? I don't know if I have problems or if the song is that good. Anyway, this clip stars Square One regulars Larry Cedar and the, and the late Reg E. Cathy who would go on to a successful career as an actor on television with a prominent supporting role on Netflix's House of Cards. Also, the first comment on the YouTube video, which was posted back in 2011, is from the woman who was the lead, quote, lip sync girl, as she put it. She said that the video was filmed on a freezing day at Jones Beach, and she actually had no idea what a tessellation was until the director, Ken Walls, told her during rehearsals. And honestly, I had no idea what it was until I saw that video. Square One, like 3 to one Contact, did make its way into classrooms, as did Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High, but I'm not going to cover those here because I already covered them. So I'm just at least going to mention them because they were core PBS entertainment for me back in junior high school. And if you want to hear me talk about Degrassi High as well as its finale, Schools Out, uh, go back to episode 107 of the show. But Degrassi showed up on PBS. Like I said, it was it was uh, ending elementary school and I was heading to junior high. And I think it was pretty much all the way through maybe about seventh or eighth grade that I watched it. And there was another show that watched was right on before it. 
at least I always caught maybe the last half of it. And that was, well, you know. Speaking of songs that get stuck in your head, where in the world is Carmen San Diego for the Uninitiative? Was a video game created in 1985 by Borderbund Software. It was available on the PC. It was immensely popular. In fact, it was one of a few games, including uh, the other computer lab classic Oregon Trail, that you could still find in the P- on the PCs in my high school as late as my senior year in '94 to '95. Anyway, the game show version of Where the World is Carmen San Diego appeared in 1991, and it would have new episodes that was produced all the way until 1995, staying in reruns until 96, when it was replaced in the PBS afternoon block by Kratz Creatures. The game show was award-winning. It netted seven daytime Emmy Awards. It won a Peabody Award, and according to its Wikipedia entry, was created in response to an early 1990s National Geographic survey showing that Americans had poor knowledge of geography. You know, I remember that survey. And it was honestly one of those surveys where, like, you read the results and you ask yourself, like, where do they find people so stupid? And then, like, 10 to 15 years later, you end up on the internet and social media and 20 or 30 years later, you're like, oh, I I can see where they find people that stupid. But the show was a pretty typical kids quiz show. It was centered on uh, geography. It had a bonus round where the contestant would set loose on a map of a continent that covered the studio floor and told them to identify seven specific places in under 45 seconds. The prize, if this person won would be a trip to whatever they had written down in a secret dossier prior to winning their winning the show. Now, I don't remember much about the early rounds of each episode, but I love that bonus round, especially because I could have smoked that thing in under the 45-second time limit. But what I really, uh, what I most remember was the theme song by Rockapello, which I played at the top of the segment, and The Chief. Uh, she was played by the late, great Lynn Thigpen. It was a role that made Thigpen hugely popular among the kids who were Carmen Sandiego's audience, and she became a fixture in the future Carmen Sandiego media as a result. Of course, many of us would then realize that she was also uh, iconic in the film The Warriors from 1979. Now, I think I watched Carmen Sandiego followed by Degrassi High until the latter show's time slot was moved during the end of my junior high years, and then there were the beginning of high school, whenever that was. And that was pretty much it for me and PBS during those formative years. And that actually was kind of a problem that the network has always had. Much of the network's primetime programming was is directed toward families or adults, especially older adults who f- prefer British dramas and comedies, as well as documentary junkies. Most of my viewing at the time was geared towards syndicated television shows and whatever I was watching on network, although there were 
five times that I distinctly remember watching a PBS program after I'd left the network behind for like a regular basis. The first time was actually in a class that came in eighth grade. It was a program that I think it was kind of a rite of passage for a number of American students in the 80s and 90s, and that was Nova's The Miracle of Life. Yes, yeah, some of you asked what's that, others nodded, and if you know, you know, you know. Anyway, when, when this first was first produced in 1982, and Nova is an ongoing science documentary series that PBS has had for, oh gosh, 40 years now, I think, kind of along with like Frontline and Nature and uh, the American Experience. In 1982, they produced the first version of this. It was pretty revolutionary at the time. It was, uh, it chronicles the gestation of a child in a mother's womb and eventual childbirth, uh, complete with in utero footage that showed the development of the fetus from its initial embryonic stages until it was ready to leave the womb. I think it was some of the first like fiber optic cable insertion, like this sort of coverage, this sort of footage, one of the first times it was ever like produced of this high quality. In fact, I'm pretty sure I saw parts of this when it first aired in PBS in 83. My dad was a biology teacher after all. He may have taped it for his own class. Although, I don't know if I saw the birthing scene when I was six. Either that or I blocked it out. I know, I, I remember, distinctly remember seeing some of the in utero footage, though. Anyway, what traumatized us in biology class when we were 13 years old in eighth grade was the birthing scene. Now, it's not that traumatic, honestly. It can be in some cases, but when you really think about it, childbirth is pretty amazing. But when you're 13, your bio teachers were winding the birthing scene and excitedly pointing at the woman's birth canal and screaming, watch the ambiotic fluids pour out. It, it kind of grosses you out a little bit, to be completely honest. So thanks for that, Buck. I really appreciate it. Anyway, science documentary Metal Scars behind me. The other four shows I want to mention were all related to entertainment, and two of them were concerts. Back in the early 90s, PBS had a music documentary and concert series called In the Spotlight. And one episode I remember catching, really almost by accident, was their profile of Elton John. Uh, this would have been around the release of The One. This was his 1992 album. It was a huge hit. It brought with it several top 10 hits. It was the first album released after his early 90s stint in rehab. It was kind of a comeback album. Um, his late 80s stuff was not well received from what I remember. And it's not like he had completely faded, but this was just like, this was the beginning of like true 90s era Elton John. Like a couple years after this, he would do the Lion King soundtrack. And that would, again, like cement him for another generation. Now I knew who Elton John was. I've been listening to the radio long enough. Um, there was a music video show on in the early 1980s on the Fox 5 network, or, or before uh, it was Fox 5, it was just on Channel 5 called Hot. I wrote about it uh, back in 2017 on the blog. And I remember seeing the video for, I think I'm Still Standing, and probably Sad Songs Say So Much. So I knew who Elton John was, but this was actually my gateway into his entire catalog. I found the documentary interesting, even though, you know, it was more, the thing was more or less like, here's some concert footage and behind the scenes of making the latest album, kind of like a making of the movie special. I used to watch this all the time when they were on, but um, 
Well, the songs are more interesting to me because the, he would play stuff that wasn't just necessarily on the new album. So I would hear Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, and that was like the one song I remember hearing. I think it was the finale of the entire concert, and it was just, it blew me away. And from there, I went and I looked for it at my local library. Uh, they had a great CD section, and I took out Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I copied about maybe half of the album to a cassette tape, uh, which included Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. It's still one of my favorite Elton John songs, as well as the like 11-minute epic funeral for a friend, Love Lives Bleeding, which uh, he performed in full concert when I saw, he performed in full in concert when I saw him with Billy Joel in 2001. And speaking of Billy Joel, he's the other person who had a making of album that uh, special that uh, aired on PBS. But unlike Elton, I was really into Billy Joel at the time. I had a number of songs in regular rotation on my Walkman. And that included what was his latest album at the time, and his last album would be his last album, River of Dreams. Uh, the documentary was called Shades of Grey. It came out in 1993, and it, just like the Elton John piece, it mixed interviews, behind-the-scenes footage of recording the album, and performances. I think I only saw this once. I thought it was pretty cool to see all behind-the-scenes stuff, especially the process by which a song was written or how it was rehearsed and recorded for both an album and a tour. It made me like some of the album cuts on River of Dreams a little more than I had upon first listening. Although I have to admit, it's one of Billy Joel's albums I probably listened to the least. It's not my least listened to. That's probably Cold Spring Harbor. And it's not my least favorite. That's An Innocent Man. But when I was a teenager, I didn't get a lot of access to videos and performances. So having this opportunity to see an all-time favorite was a nice treat. Like I said, I probably watched this once, maybe twice. But after seeing this and the Elton John special, I would occasionally check TV Guide for PBS listings or flip around to see if there was anything interesting. Usually there wasn't, unless I was interested in the latest Poirot mystery. But occasionally you get stuff like Parrot Sketch Not Included, a Monty Python retrospective that was originally produced in 1988 before Graham Chapman's death, but would get the occasional rerun, along with Monty Python's Flying Circus episodes, well into the 90s, which is when I first saw it. Comedy is one of those things in my life that should get its own episode, and that includes Monty Python. But I saw this right around the time I had already watched the Holy Grail enough times to have half of it memorized. And I'd rented Life of Brian and the Meaning of Life from the video store. I've only seen each of those about once or twice, though. Plus, I watched that Saturday Night Live 15th anniversary special that I talked about years ago enough time to know that show compilation shows like this were a gold mine. And this Python special definitely was. Pirate Sketch Not Included, it was a clip show. It had a various flying circus sketches except for the parrot sketch of course and while i'd seen a few of them or heard a few on a comedy album or two most of them were very new to me plus these clip shows were such perfect gateways in the equivalent of a greatest hits hits album i used the phrase before the internet here but i think still think that a good clip show or a countdown program or some other compilation program still holds value because they often give you a window into things you might want to seek out on your own. Some type of things that maybe an algorithm won't necessarily lead you to. So such was the case with Python in the same sense with the Elton John concert that I talked about. 
And it was kind of the same case with the program called American Masters. And they ran an episode about George Lucas. Now, this was one of those interviews with clip shows that they, they abound on television. You know, it was a, a classed up version of the e true Hollywood story behind the music or something, right? And, and the, the show worked its way through Lucas's biography and his career, taking the time to spotlight each of his films up to that point. Now, this is before the Star Wars prequels. I think it took us right up to Willow and the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I think those might have been the most recent uh, projects that he did. And while I was familiar with a number of his movies for obvious reasons, this was, show was responsible for two things. First, it kind of reignited or further reignited my love for Star Wars. I'd been enjoying the new novels since Heir to the Empire had come out, but this had me wanting to take a deeper dive into the films and I, because I hadn't watched them regularly in a number of years at that point. The other thing was it made me go out and rent American Graffiti. And that was a movie I'd heard of because I'd heard the soundtrack, but I didn't know it's connect. I didn't know George Lucas had directed it and I really didn't know what it was about. Now it's honestly one of my favorite films of all time. And at one point or another was my favorite George Lucas film too. It's probably going to get its own episode one day, but this also introduced me to, well, I say it should reintroduce me to the mythology that was behind Lucas's storytelling. The special featured interviews with Lucas himself, along with some of the actors he worked with, as well as Joseph Campbell. I found that part fascinating, and while I have not read The Hero with a Thousand Faces yet, and I really should, I did get the book George Lucas, The Creative Impulse, which is this coffee table book that was a retrospective of his career at the time. And it's a cool book, too. I still own it. So PBS was educating me as a teenager about pop culture. Granted, it was stuff that was not on the level that what the cool kids were into, but it was stuff that I was into. Plus, it's always given me a chance to indulge my inner nerd. I DVR the American experience on a regular basis. I've indulged in a number of Ken Burns documentaries. I've found that shows like Frontline and Independent Lens usually have features that I find interesting or pique my curiosity, usually in topics that are not in my wheelhouse. Then again, do I have a wheelhouse? This show doesn't necessarily stay in the same place, right? Anyway, the beauty of being a lifelong PBS person, even if my interest has ebbed and flowed over the years, is that there's always something on. Yeah, I taped the nerd stuff, but I also watched Create, the PBS network spinoff, every night. I've watched Simon and Garfunkel's Concert in Central Park more times than I can count because I've just come across it on PBS, usually during a pledge drive, but it's so great. And I have the album on, on MP3 and on vinyl too. So it's just, it's one of those perennial things that I'll stop and watch for a while because I just love it. But, but beyond that, you know, there's stuff like America's Test Kitchen and Rick Steve's Europe. And I know these aren't prestige TV that people are watching on like Hulu and Netflix and HBO Max and stuff, but on a night that's usually coming after like a stressful day, I want comfort food sometimes. You know, I don't necessarily want to sit and think about a show. Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers were there for me when I needed them as a little kid. 
And as I got into my teenage years, I found the value of PBS's ability to chill you out when you needed it. Of course, that was because I watched The Joy of Painting. Now, this still gets run on Create, and I will still watch it unironically. Yeah, as teenagers in the age of irony, my sister and I would watch The Joy of Painting because we enjoyed it. If we found it on TV, we'd just sit there and watch him finish that thing. And sometimes we'd comment on what he was painting. Oh, did it look nice? Is it something that he was capable of making? Is he adding a little too much? It's a show that's relaxing and even fun, just like the other cooking and travel shows I like. And stuff like Antiques Roadshow, which I also watch every week. I realize this cements my place in the pantheon of the uncool, but I'm beyond the age of where I should care about such things. Give me Rick Steves touring the Scottish Highlands, Bridget Lancaster and Julia Colin Davidson making a chocolate tart, Nicholas Lowry appraising a poster any day of the week, and I am a happy man. So that's my look at PBS. Sort of. I have one more episode about PBS coming up in December, but it's going to be specifically about Christmas or holiday programming. So come around in about a month for that. And in the meantime, you can check out the blog for the show notes and the links as usual. Also come back in later in the month of November and then on December 31st, as I present the last two episodes of Fallen Walls Open Curtains as we draw a close or draw the curtain on pun intended, the end of the Cold War uh, 30 years later. So stick around, come back for those, and uh, feel free to get in touch with me over email or Twitter and the usual places. And until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.